Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump is expressing satisfaction with his trade policy. Last week, the administration started looking into a 25 percent tax on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods, up from 10 percent. And yesterday at 5 a.m., there were a flurry of trade tweets. The president says tariffs are working big time and says that tariffs will make our country much richer than it is today. Only fools would disagree. With me is Phil Levy. He's a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and we've been talking trade with him uh, in recent months. Good to talk with you again, Phil. Good to be here. I thought you were going to introduce me as a fool who disagreed. <laughs> I was going to. I was going to leave it to you to volunteer whether you're a fool who disagreed or, or what. I'm happy to take the role. Okay. Um, I, you know, why did President Trump first of all do this thing with the the tariffs and and move to this 25 percent tax from a 10 percent tax last week? What was the what's the deal there? I think there's a couple of things going on. So it's worth remembering that it was the beginning of July that he stuck tariffs on about $34 billion worth of trade with China. Um, I think the hope in the administration, what they said out loud, was that China was going to just concede, that they would say, all right, you guys mean business, we, we clearly have to give in. China didn't do that, and the administration has been pretty open about its frustration. So, to, so they had this next batch of goods that they were talking about, about $200 billion, where they initially talked about opposing a 10% tariff. I think that they looked ahead and said, you know, what happens if the Chinese don't give in? They really don't want to cover the remaining goods with China because those are the things that we see on the store shelves for Christmas time or for kids back to school shopping. And they've consciously avoided that. So I think, one, there was this idea to hit harder um, and maybe the Chinese would give in. And two... There's a concern that China's currency has been depreciating, so maybe a 10% tariff wasn't going to do that much to the competitiveness of Chinese goods. All right, so they, they hike it up there, and the idea is that they will get talks and concessions then. That's the hope. Um, there's been no evidence of that so far, that there have been a whole series of talks before the imposition of tariffs. There have been no talks since, nor are there any scheduled. And the Chinese have been pretty forthright about how this is not an approach that they can respond to in any positive way. And they've been saying things about defending the national dignity. So it it doesn't sound terribly promising. You know, before this, I was thinking, well, for sure, this administration's strategy was to get concessions in talks. But there is another option, and it is that the administration thinks that tariffs are pretty good economic policy and that, um, you know, if they get concessions, great. But if they don't get concessions, the president seems to think that this is really a pretty solid economic um, policy, and he was – tweeting about this um, on, you know, on the, on, about the steel tariffs. Tariffs are having a tremendous impact on the steel industry. Plants opening all over the U.S. Steel workers are at work again. Big dollars flowing into our treasuries. Um, other countries use tariff against us, but when we use them, foolish people scream. Tariffs are working big time. Uh, you know, he was just a flurry of uh, endorsement for tariffs and seems to think they were going to be good anyway for the U.S., You're exactly right. And this is the big divide, I think, among those who are observing the Trump administration's trade policy. Are tariffs a means to an end or are tariffs an end in themselves? 
And the administration will say both. The president has been consistently enthused about tariffs really for decades now. He's, it's perhaps the point at which he has been most consistent over his career, that he thinks blocking trade is a good idea. Um, so he will do all the tweets you said. He'll talk about how he's going to offset the national debt with revenue from tariffs. Um, so that that is a very consistent stance that he personally takes. Meanwhile, he occasionally and his administration frequently will say, no, no, this is a temporary thing. We're pushing on to a better place, a world of free, fair and open trade. And it'll be amazing when we get there. And it's right around the corner. All right. I mean, to him, though, it really does seem like it they, that we win either way. He said that in a tweet. He said, well, we're using the tariffs to negotiate trade deals. If countries are still unwilling to negotiate, they'll pay us vast sums of money in the form of tariffs, and we will win either way. I think that's right. Now, I come down on the side of I think he actually wants the tariffs. Um, the way we can see that is... He's not really putting forward many viable options, things that these countries can do to try to meet his demands. We often don't know what the, you know, what the required action would be. Where we've seen the president negotiate a trade deal or his team negotiate a trade deal, it turns out that the way you get past you know, these trade blockages is with more trade blockages. That was what we did with South Korea and steel, for example, that... We replaced tariffs with quotas, but it was uh, it was still a trade blockage. I think with China, China has offered deals. Some of the president's cabinet members have accepted those deals, and the president has then rejected them and said he wants tariffs instead. So I think some of the stuff about getting to a better place is is a way to sort of string along some supporters who otherwise might have real doubts about the cost this policy is imposing. I'm talking with Phil Levy. He's a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're talking about President Trump's latest moves on on trade policy. In a few moments, we're going to be having our series Puerto Reconstruction, and we'll be talking about university professors uniting against um, closing some of the schools at the University of Puerto Rico. Um, Phil, you know, it's uh, the the president, um, if he's in this position where he really thinks we we win either way and he thinks that a lot of people are making money in the steel industry, there's been some interesting articles in the New York Times about um, some of the people who were close to his administration being very close with a lot of the steel companies that are doing really well now and are kind of uh, – uh, I don't know what to say, creating a better market for themselves through all this. It almost seems like a, like a rigged game for these guys, and this is a uh, satisfactory goal. Well, that's been one of the longstanding critiques of trade protection is that it favors the few at the expense of the many, and we're certainly seeing that with steel. And you're absolutely right. The president has populated his economic team, um, not exclusively, but heavily with people who have a steel industry background, and the steel industry has been right out front among American industries in asking for protection in recent decades, and usually receiving it as well. This is not a novelty that we have protection for steel. The president's just taken it to a new level. So, But one of the, one of the dangers is it ends up being that you get rewards if you know the right people, and it seems like an invitation to corruption. And what's the downside for the economy if the, the steel guys are doing great? Does the economy do great? 
No, the economy doesn't do great. Um, one of the uh, sort of more striking numbers here is we have about 140,000 Americans who work in the production of steel. We have about 2 million Americans who work in industries that use steel intensively. So when the price of steel goes up, it's great for the 140,000. It's not so great for the 2 million. And I'm talking about, you know, say a company that makes auto parts here in Illinois, um, where they need to sometimes, by their customers' demand, use imported steel to fill orders, and they're having difficulties. And we're seeing that up and down these supply chains. On top of that, other countries retaliate, and we've seen that. So you get uh, blockages of American soybean exports, for example, and that hurts farmers. So, no, it definitely does not help the economy as a whole. Uh, do you think that um, what's happening with uh, the economy, though, is that it's going so well, uh, everyone sees that the economy is having a great time, and the trade policy hasn't really affected that? Uh, I did read a – which is kind of um, – Something that crosses my mind. It doesn't seem like it's hurting anybody right now. But I did read a rather persuasive article uh, in the deal book section of the New York Times that said that the, a trade truce could add $2 trillion to the stock market and made a, made a pretty persuasive case that the stock market would be up 3,000 points if we weren't having this, um, this kind of trade fracas with Europe and with, uh, with, with our allies, with China, we'd be doing even better because the economic numbers have been so good. The president has been talking about tariffs for a long time, but in terms of really slapping on tariffs in any sort of big way, that's been a much more recent development, and it takes some time to, to feel the effects of that. As to what the market thinks and where the market's going, I wish I could tell you exactly where the market was going. It'd be good for me as well. What I would say is I think the market's been fairly complacent um, and assuming that these are means to an end tariffs and that we're going to get to a better place as opposed to having a bigger breakdown of trade. I think there's an acid test coming up for this, which is likely to be perhaps towards the end of this month, beginning of next, when the Trump administration decides what it wants to do with autos trade. It has started an investigation just like steel and aluminum, and it has indicated it's very interested in protecting autos trade in ways that the auto industry has said they most emphatically don't want. Um, that's going to be a really big test. Quantitatively, that's a much bigger deal than the, the protection we've had so far. Uh, I wonder if we could look at this through China's eyes for a second. You mentioned that they were uh, taking some action with their currency. Uh, they were uh, depreciating their currency a bit. Uh, it, what um, Donald Trump says in his tweets that China's doing poorly against us for the first time and, and he's got him running scared and doing PR to our politicians uh, about the tariffs that are hurting them. How do you read what's happening from China's point of view? Yeah. So I think, first, I want to be clear, China's currency has been depreciating. I don't think that to date that's been a policy measure by the Chinese government. In fact, it looks like they've been spending down reserves to try and slow that because people get worried about the Chinese currency or the Chinese economy. They try to move out of the currency and you see a depreciation. Um, China's got some economic troubles. And the president, uh, President Trump, has been forthright about that and sees this as a moment of weakness when he can take advantage. It's worth noting that when China has a slowdown, we're talking about official growth figures 
of you know six point five to seven percent. So still much higher than than standard U.S. growth figures. But they've got debt issues. Um, they've they've got some you know economic difficulties, slowdown, things that they have to deal with. The problem is that they also have politics, just like we have politics here, and it's politically untenable for Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, to simply uh, give in uh, in the face of President Trump's bluster. So the president's approach to, to making a deal has been one which has made it almost impossible for the Chinese to accept. Phil Levy is a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about President Trump's latest moves with trade in China. Great to be with you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A second earthquake in under a week has hit the Indonesian island of Lombok, killing at least 91 people and injuring many others. The 6.9 magnitude tremor damaged thousands of buildings and triggered power cuts. The north of the island was the worst affected. It's very difficult to get through to people there since the quake. So Saibok, a local resident there, sent the BBC messages on WhatsApp, and here is a description of the moment the earthquake struck. It was around 7 p.m. when the earthquakes came. Many people who are at home and also many in the most performed worship Suddenly the earthquake came and the lights went out. Everyone shut out. The sound of the building collapsed. A few moments later, we saw people running full of blood. We ran to a spacious location. <clears throat> then we took the initiative to run towards the hills because there was a tsunami issue. During the trip to the hill, we saw the buildings are collapsed. Many people shut out, running and crying, looking for their family. A mother came to me and asked me for help because her child was buried in a building while her body was full of blood. I traced the house everyone had collapsed. I myself then run looking for my family. Everyone goes to save themselves. While in the hills, the earthquake continued. All people cry and fear. When morning came, all the residents came down and saw uh, the condition of their house. All buildings are rappelled to the ground. Then we heard that many people dead. All people in panic. And this is Saibok's description of the earthquake aftermath. Uh, current condition, dozens of people died and hundreds of people were injured. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Lombok residents are now in emergency tents waiting for help. Many injured people who have not been helped. Logistic assistance is very much not yet coming. People lack clean water, food and tents. While uh, the community is making ten, uh, tents from cloth and uh, whatever they encounter. So for those uh, who hear this message, uh, I wish you could help the people in Lombok. Uh, the people do what they can do, save or what they can save, but certainly not much because uh, they just uh, took the blanket at home and uh, were scared because the earthquake uh, continued uh, again and again. Uh, uh, they sent me uh, to Mataram to seek help while they stayed in emergency tent. They need drink water, fast food and medicine because a lot of uh, injured people still uh, has no medicine and there is no doctor. And then uh, the most important thing uh, for now is uh, attend because the, the weather in Lombok is very cold. That was Saibak, a resident of Lombok, Indonesia, talking with the BBC about the magnitude 6.9 earthquake that hit that area.
Coming up after the break, we'll have our continuing Monday series, Puerto Reconstruction, and I'll talk with a professor who's helping fight the cuts at the University of Puerto Rico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our ongoing Monday feature, Puerto Reconstruction. We're talking about Puerto Rico's recovery through the hurricane season. And today we're going to focus on the future of higher education in Puerto Rico and talk about Puerto Rico's credit unions. The University of Puerto Rico faces stiff budget cuts because of the Commonwealth's budget deficits, and the Professors Association has filed a lawsuit to challenge the cuts imposed by the Fiscal Control Board that Congress appointed to manage Puerto Rico's debt. With us is Eva Luz Cotu, and she is an associate professor in the College of Business Administration at the University of Puerto Rico and is a visiting scholar at the University of Chicago, and she's talking about uh, cooperative credit unions while she's here. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you. Could you explain what happened with the University of um, Puerto Rico when it came to the Fiscal Control Board? Because I know that... Um, even, you know, the Fiscal Control Board was uh, going to make some cuts and everybody's going to make cuts. That's their thing. Um, what was its interaction with the university? Well, since their first meeting in New York, the Fiscal Control Board appointed the University of Puerto Rico as a covered institution under PROMESA. What that means is that the Fiscal Control Board assumed financial control of the University of Puerto Rico. And through that control, it has been uh, uh, trying to implement their austerity program on the university. Now, if you want to challenge something like that, um, the Professors Association is filing this lawsuit. Is that okay? Does that, that mean is that uh, do courts look at the association of professors as uh, as as a representative body that can challenge PROMESA? Well. Um, the, under Title Three of PROMESA is, is the title that provides for the bankruptcy proceeding. The bankruptcy proceeding under PROMESA is a combination of provisions from Chapter 9 and Chapter 11. Under Chapter 9, uh, people who are not creditors of the debtor can participate as party in interest. Usually in Chapter 9 cases, uh, taxpayers, uh, uh, residents of the municipality that is in bankruptcy are recognized as party in interest, and they can uh, present their arguments before the bankruptcy judge with regard to the adjustment plan that the judge is going to uh, approve. That's what we want to do. We want to be recognized at party in interest to present to the judge our arguments with regard to the cuts the oversight board is proposing for the University of Puerto Rico. Explain what's going to happen to the University of Puerto Rico if the cuts go through. 
Well, the Oversight Board has proposed, and it certified the last, uh, most recent fiscal plan for the University of Puerto Rico at the end of June. It proposed in that fiscal plan to close seven of our 11 campuses. It has a, a program it calls Right Sizing, in which it proposed to uh, lay off 10,000 employees of university employees. It's also proposing a consolidation of programs that what will mean is that if you have a professor like me teaching in a campus in the west coast of the island, I could be uh, relocated to another campus. Well, for me, it will not be a lot of problem to relocate, but people who have family, uh, professors who have been many, for many years in, uh, in a location, it will be very difficult to, for them to relocate. And this, uh, starting this new term now in August, it has, uh, through the Board of Directors of the University of Puerto Rico, the tuition and fees for the student was increased over 100%. It seems like for students, that would certainly be a burden, as would traveling greater distances. I imagine you, the, you have all the campuses so that people can live at home and go to the university. If, if you only have three, I, there's got to be people have to stay in dorms and room and board. I imagine there's a different cost level on that, too. Yeah, the, the main problem is that Puerto Rico is in a fiscal crisis and in an economic crisis for over 10 years. So the people of Puerto Rico now are poorer than 10 years before. And now if you increase the uh, tuition and fees, what you are doing is uh, you are limiting the accessibility of our university. the, the University of Puerto Rico is very different from the universities in the United States because we are 70% subsidized by the government of Puerto Rico. And that's what the Oversight Board want to eliminate. They want to reduce that subsidy to 30% because they need the money to pay the creditors in the bankruptcy proceeding. Where are you going to come up with the other 40%? <laughs> well, through downsizing. Uh, eliminating programs, closing uh, campuses. And the Oversight Board, I was looking at some of their material, they anticipate a decrease in students. They're, They're predicting that. Yeah, after the Hurricane Maria, their justification for the austerity measure is that people are leaving Puerto Rico. So they will, you will have less students, less close to university. We have uh, private universities in Puerto Rico, and the students can attend private universities. But that's not really correct. Yes, we have uh, lost a lot of people that have moved away from Puerto Rico. That's true. But, for example, the people who was relocated by FEMA at uh, hotels in the United States, many of that people are returning because those are the poorest people of Puerto Rico. They can't stay in the United States. So it's, it's not real that uh, we will not have enough students to keep the, uh, our operations. But it, it seems like the uh, 
number of students has held steady over in recent years have in spite increased, of have increased and in spite of the bad economic situation people want to go to the university it seems like yeah because it's the most accessible in terms of the cost and also it's of a high quality education what chance do you think your lawsuit has of modifying the cuts to the university well, uh, the first stage, we need the judge to recognize to us the status of uh, party in interest. If she does so, we have prepared our own fiscal plan for the University of Puerto Rico because we recognize that there have to be uh, done changes to the university, uh, that we cannot operate in the same way we have been operating before because we are living in an economic crisis. So it's not like we are rejecting all the cuts, but we have a plan to do it without uh, closing access to the youth of Puerto Rico to higher education. I'm talking with Eva Luz Coto. She is an associate professor in the College of Business Administration at the University of Puerto Rico. She's a visiting scholar at the University of Chicago, and we've been talking about the lawsuit that the Professors Association at the University of Puerto Rico has filed against the Fiscal Control Board, which is managing Puerto Rico's debt and recommending cuts to the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, I want to pivot to some of the research that you're doing while you're here in Chicago as a visiting scholar at the University of Chicago. You're researching what's happening with uh, some of the cooperative credit unions in Puerto Rico versus uh, the bank's control under FDIC uh, guarantees. Uh, Could you explain what has happened with the uh, economic crisis and the banks in Puerto Rico? Since 2010, the FDIC has closed four banks in Puerto Rico. Uh, currently, there are only four FDIC-insured banks in Puerto Rico. And since that uh, date, since 2010, the market share of those FDIC-insured banks has been declining. And the market share of cooperative credit unions were local depository institutions not insured by the FDIC. They have a local deposit insurer. Their market share has been increasing. So what's happening there? What are people saying when they're doing this? They're going to the credit unions rather than FDIC-controlled banks. Well, the people in Puerto Rico are really the depositor of cooperative credit unions are concerned that the oversight board could have in the, in its plans to close many of their institutions. And if those institutions are closed, they would lose access to the financial system because those depositors are poor people of Puerto Rico. And usually, FDIC-insured banks does not sell loans to that kind of people because they are high risk. So that uh, people would, uh, would have to rely on predatory lenders like pawn shops for their uh, access to finance. Is it safe to say that because of all the uh, fiscal and uh, hurricane problems in Puerto Rico, that 
people are going to the credit unions more often because they are in more urgent need of credit and these people extend credit to them. And the credit unions in Puerto Rico were the first depository institution that opened their doors to their clients after the hurricane struck Puerto Rico. So yes, they have the cooperative credit union has a very loyal depositors. Is uh, One of the issues surrounding the credit unions in Puerto Rico is that they are um, – they have some of the debt that is uh, the bond-held debt that people have and uh, everyone is they're, – they're, some of them are probably insolvent. Yeah, that's true. They bought Puerto Rico bonds and uh, they bought a lot of money in Puerto Rico bonds. They invested a lot of money in Puerto Rico bonds and in many of those bonds. So they are creditors. If some of them are insolvent, the, their supervisor, there is the local deposit insurer, uh, the COSEC uh, Corporation, will have probably to close a son of them. And that's not wrong. That's the, the correct things to do. What uh, I'm objecting to is that the oversight board proposed before Hurricane Maria to transfer assets and deposits of cooperative credit union to non-cooperative credit unions. And probably those institutions that would benefit from those assets and deposits are going to be FDIC insurer banks. In Puerto Rico, FDIC insured banks, the shareholder, over 90% of the shareholders of FDIC insured banks in Puerto Rico are U.S. financial institutions. So it's just another stage of the territorial relationship we have uh, been having with the United States for over 120 years. You use a territory to extract wealth from the territory and transfer it to U.S. Uh, interest. So uh, all these people who are using the cooperative credit unions, if all their assets went into these FDIC banks, um, could they take them out? Could they just get out? And uh, I mean, you, you're kind of expecting that they would go into the informal marketplace rather than yeah. go to the FDIC banks. Yeah, probably they will have to go to uh, predatory lenders. Yeah. Uh, well, what are the odds that something like that would happen, that the transfer of um, all these uh, the people's money, the more vulnerable people in Puerto Rico would go over to these FTIC banks? Well, we have to – we are waiting because uh, the – Oversight Board has not yet certified the fiscal plan for the new fiscal plan for the, cost, the Cooperative Credit Union Deposit Insurer. Once that, that fiscal plan is certified, we will know for sure what will happen. What I'm talking to you now is based on uh, the fiscal plan they certified before Hurricane Maria, but due to the hurricane, they stalled the implementation of that plan. All right. Um, given what you know about the Fiscal Control Board, it sounds like they would want to do this thing, right? This is their kind of MO. They would want to transfer things over and boost the boost the banks, the FDIC banks, which are not doing so hot in Puerto Rico. 
Yeah, I believe so. And also because the Oversight Board is the representative of the government in, of Puerto Rico in the bankruptcy proceeding. So it needs to uh, release money to pay U.S. creditors and eliminating uh, cooperative credit unions, closing them would be a way of releasing money that you don't have to pay to them as creditors to pay U.S. creditors. Uh it seems kind of like so many harsh things go on. Uh, you know, uh, how do you put a stop to? It? I mean, you, here you've got uh, you know, uh, uh, filed a lawsuit for the university. How do you uh, you know stop the fiscal control board from doing this? If you, if you uh, can you can you sue again with the, the credit unions yeah. or uh, uh, you, you, who do you talk to? The Promesa Act was uh, approved under the power, the congressional power under the territorial clause. So they have absolute power over Puerto Rico. And if Puerto Rico continues to be a U.S. territory, there is not a lot we can do. You know, the, uh, for changes in Puerto Rico, there must be a change in the territorial relationship. Puerto Rico should assume sovereignty powers uh, that allow it to control its economy, build up capital in Puerto Rico, not transfer that capital to uh, U.S. institutions, and develop its economy to pay its debt. Puerto Rico wants to pay its debt. The problem is that the Puerto Rico doesn't have control of its resources. Eva Luz Coto is an associate professor in the College of Business Administration at the University of Puerto Rico, and we were talking about the lawsuit that the professors have brought against the Fiscal Control Board and talked about what's happening with the cooperative credit unions and the FDIC banks in Puerto Rico. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Next Monday on our series, Puerto Reconstruction, we'll talk about how Congress wants to keep Puerto Rico from, re from using renewables. Coming up after the break, a country that has thrown off uh, austerity measures and has an economic revival on their hands, Portugal. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking about Puerto Rico. The fiscal authority in control there is closing schools and maybe credit unions to help pay off creditors. The austerity plan should begin to pay back debt, but economic growth looks a long way off. In contrast, the government of Portugal rejected demands for austerity in 2015. They've seen growth at a faster rate than countries like Greece. Let's talk about austerity with Stephen Keane. He's the head of the School of Economics, History, and Politics at Kingston University in London. He's the host of the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks for joining us, Steve Keane. You're welcome. I, what about the, the logic of austerity? In a case like Puerto Rico or Greece, 
people can see that the country has uh, place has taken on a lot more uh, debt than they can pay back, and something has to be done. So they have to make cuts and 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 get to a place where they can pay back their debt again. What what's wrong with that logic? Well, the basic logic is the same thing that you'd apply if you were thinking about your own household and you thought, I've got, uh, you know, I, I want to, um, I've got debts I need to pay back. One way to pay those debts back is to spend less. I'll cut back on my spending. And what then happens is your income remains roughly constant, your spending falls, and the change in the, in, in the, the two ends up in your bank account. So if you decide to spend, let's say you're spending $200, I'm using trivial numbers here just to make the arithmetic easier. Imagine you're spending $200 a year and you then cut it back to 190 a year, you're going to save 10 and that's that's the sort of logic we can see in our own bank accounts. And what we then do is, con- consciously or otherwise, we extrapolate that to the national level and the international level. But when you do it at that level, rather than expenditure and income being independent, they're actually identical. Money you spend becomes income for somebody else. So if you decide uh, as a sector of an economy, let's say we're talking the government sector here, to spend less, let's say that we're talking, I'll, I'll again use round, round figures, you're spending a $100 billion a year despite to spend, decide to spend $5 billion less a year to pay, use that to pay your debts down, you reduce the income by $5 billion. So spending at the, at the sectoral level in, in an economy becomes an identical fall in GDP. Now, what you're trying to do is to, is to change things so your ratio of debt to GDP falls. But what you've done, you might have reduced your debt, but you reduced your GDP by, by, by precisely as much. And if you cause the money in the economy to turn over more slowly and the result of that, you may reduce GDP by even more. So it's a counterproductive strategy to try to cut spending to reduce debt at the national level. Why do so many countries um, kind of gang up on each other and make this happen? We saw the EU do it in country after country. Why do they impose austerity? It's a, again, it's an intellectual philosophy getting in the way of sitting down and saying what actually are the systemic impacts of doing things like this. In the European Union's case, it's what's known as auto-liberalism, which takes the Austrian idea of Austrian economics and how the economy works best if it's entirely private you know, private sector system uh, and extrapolate that to say, well, to enforce the market, you need to have very strong laws. That's where the auto section comes from. And what they see themselves as doing in, in, in Germany's case is, you know, consistently running government surpluses, consistently running trade surpluses. And what they're basically saying is the rest of the world should do exactly what we're doing. Now, with government surpluses, it's rather hard to get your head around the logic. But obviously, I hope, in the case of trade surpluses, if one country is being successful because it's running a trade surplus, by definition, the rest of the world cannot emulate it because we don't, so far as I know as yet, export to Mars. So the aggregate trade balance of the Earth is zero. (laughs) Now, what you've got is people saying you should all do what we do. Well, what that ends up being is a simply deflationary emphasis upon government policy. Let's spend less. Now, that sounds frugal, it sounds responsible, but by spending less, you are causing GDP to fall. Again, it's a very short-term uh, myopic view of a, of a very complex system, and they're ignoring the, the, the consequences of their actions at the systemic level. 
Now, let's talk for a second about Portugal. In 2015, they elected a new government that was going that said it was going to be against austerity measures and it reversed all these cuts to wages and pensions and social security and they offered incentives to businesses and um, they they just pulled a complete U-turn on austerity. How did that work out? Well, interestingly enough, as I said, the straight austerity can be counterproductive. So if you go back to the start of the crisis uh, in 2009, roughly, when the global financial crisis hit, at that stage, uh, Portugal's pri- government debt level was 72% of GDP. It doubled to 140% until this new government was elected, while, of course, they were imposing the austerity programs, which were supposed to reduce that debt level. Once this new government took over, the government debt level has actually fallen. It's gone from 145% of GDP in 2015 when they came to power to 141% now. So it's declined, even though they're spending more. Why? Because they're spending more is encouraging other people to spend more, encouraging the private sector to reduce its debts less rapidly than it was doing, and total spending has fallen. And you've also had, a, it must be added, one, one side, one way the austerity programs have worked on their own agenda is their intention is to drastically reduce uh, domestic costs and therefore making more export co- competitive. And on that front, that's also had an impact. I can't deny there's been that extra component as well because Portugal's trade deficit has gone from 10% of GDP to actually a surplus of 2% of GDP. So all those factors together have meant the economy has recovered and is growing rather than shrinking, of course, as you know, it's happening to Puerto Rico. Well, uh, why don't more countries do what Portugal does when they're in an austerity situation? It comes back again to the way we think about the economy. Most uh, politicians have done Economics 101. They've swallowed the microeconomic vision of how the economy operates and a vision which says markets are best if government doesn't interfere. And whether they're conscious of it or not, that's the sort of policy they bring into uh, into account when they become uh, in power. And the economists advising them, the mainstream economists that I've been critiquing for 40 years now, don't give them any real ammunition to say otherwise. So the complex systemic feedbacks that we look at at the monetary level, the, the sort of people that work that I do and the work that modern monetary theory economists do as well, that's not known by politicians, not supported by the economists they're advised by, and they go straight into basically treating the entire economy as a household. And if you keep on doing that, the end result is a GDP of zero. Now, we hear politicians from everywhere in the spectrum do the analogy about household spending. This is true in our both parties in our country. Um, uh, parties in other countries do it as well. It, it seems to be a universally held thing that the, that the nation is the same as your household budget. Mm. Yes, and if it, if it was, was, I'd be relieved, relieved because I could go down to my central bank in the basement and print the money I need to pay off my mortgage. <laughs> So let's you know try to be a bit you know, invert the invert the usual way of thinking about it and say well we were a household none of us would have any debts because we'd all on a central bank whose money would be accepted in the rest of the country and we'd be able to liberate ourselves of any financial constraints whatsoever. And of course that's not true. And equally the opposite argument that the entire economy is a household is also not true. It's just getting through that mindset that it is the same thing. Uh, how. Did you have any advice for people back in 2008 and nine when the financial crisis hit? Were, would people listen to this? 
Not at the government level, but what, what I was saying, and this, this is the, the key, again, the way in which mainstream economics and political thinking channeled by the economics ignores the important issues. I was saying throughout, right from 2006, when I started warning of an approaching crisis, that the real cause of the crisis was too much private debt, not government debt, because, of course, as a household is situated, a household does not own its own bank, a household will be in debt and so will a corporation to a non, to another institution called a private bank and that's the debt that really matters. So in Portugal's case, for example, uh, while the EU obsessed about the level of government debt and that rose from 60% to 70% between the start of the euro and the global financial crisis, they completely ignored private debt. But that rose from 120% of GDP to 200% of GDP across the same time period and that's what gave Portugal, the appearance of a boom until the crisis hit, and then reduction of that debt level since has caused the, the extended downturn and the cutback in government spending made it worse. So but what I found is some people that take my advice on private debt and got out of it and managed to do very well on the downturn, but governments continue obsessing about a debt they can actually, when they have their own currency, easily service and ignoring one which they can't control, which is private debt. Why don't banks get... Um get a haircut more often? Why are they the ones that always seem to get the bailout? Yeah, this is a very good question. I think it's because if you go back to the Great Depression and the Second World War, it was obvious in those two uh, human tragedies that the banking sector played a major role because private banking financing of the stock market bubble in the 1920s, which gave us the roaring 20s, also literally led into the, led, caused the Great Depression of the 1930s. And lots of bankers went to jail in the whole process there. And they were very much on the nose. Uh, same thing, of course, applied in Germany with catastrophic uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, but in that situation, the bankers at the end of the Second World War were didn't have particularly high status, had to regain their, their vision of respect in society. And the level of debt we owed to the banks was actually quite small as well. But as the economy recovered, we had more and more uh, people making use of bank credit to finance expenditure by corporations, expenditure by households. The debt level rose over time. And as society gets more indebted to the banks, ultimately their power over us rises as well. And now there wouldn't be a politician who doesn't know people, lots of people in the banking sector and knows almost nobody in the manufacturing sector and, uh, and in some extent, uh, the agricultural sector. So the political power of the financial sector dominates society these days to our detriment. And we should really learn the lessons of the 1930s and say a lot of these guys should have gone to jail and the practices they were getting involved in, which was strictly fraudulent, should be penalised. And in that case, the assets... Uh, their assets should have gone down. The publics, the uh, households and firms, the public, the public itself shouldn't have suffered. It seems like the way we reduce the equation, though, is that like Puerto Rico borrowed all this money and made all this debt instead of banks uh, actually allowed this to happen, or, or you know, in Portugal or Greece's case, somebody did the lending here. These these banks, uh, you shouldn't have lent the money. You were lending to a dangerous, uh, in a dangerous situation, and you, I guess, deserve to lose under some kind of economic orthodoxy. Even under legal orthodoxy, because one thing, when you take out a bond, one reason you get paid a high rate of interest than you get if you borrow, if you bought a government bond, 
uh, you know, in the case of buying bonds of Puerto Rico, is you know there's risk involved. And risk means, well, you might lose your money. Now, that means, of course, that if there's something like a hurricane comes along, which literally wipes out the entire power system of a country, that's a risk. Uh, they're in every, have every right to default on their debts. And you can't, not in a position to complain because one of the risks you knew you were undertaking was the fact that the money could be destroyed by uh, future, future events. And that's, that, that should have been the case. There's no way that, uh, that any debts that Puerto Rico had before September of 2017 should be honoured. They should all be defaulted upon quite legitimately because the risk should be borne by both the creditor and the debtor and not the debtor alone. Do you see the conversation on this changing at all in the public over the last 10 years? There's a number of economists who speak out like yourself and say um, the kind of anti-austerity things that you're saying, but um, it doesn't seem to seep into political discourse so easily. And, I, I, you know, I just don't see a lot of politicians taking that up. No, I think you've got a bit of change with a new member of the Democratic Party uh, who clearly understands monetary dynamics and has has won won an election because of it. But a lot of the reasons why politicians won't approach people like myself is they know that as soon as they do, the other side of politics will rubbish them for doing so. And you, you know in the back rooms that sometimes they say, well, some of us understand what you're talking about, but clearly a lot don't. But that... They simply are afraid of making the entrance into the public arena without to, to avoid being criticised by the other side of politics and rubbish for being, you know, people are going to spend all our money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, is, that is the real political block. And I think what's actually happened is because of that, you've got a wild card current candidate like Trump getting through in the middle because what the reasonable politicians won't say, the public is still feeling the pressure of that, and they'll vote for somebody who's a maverick who says, I'm going to become a human hand grenade and blow up all the conventions in Washington. So uh, it doesn't actually help to try to avoid people speaking truth to power because in the end you'll get somebody like Trump speaking God knows what to power instead. Steve Keen is the head of the School of Economics, History, and Politics at Kingston University in London. He's the host of the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about austerity in Puerto Rico and Portugal. Welcome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have another fine show for you. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview's is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.